Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. When we sing, your mind should be working about the words that we sing because the Bible tells us that those words are the most important part because we are speaking and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why we have three hymnals. The little black one is for us to be able to sing the psalms with our ancestors in the faith. That's how they sung them from a psalter. The burgundy hymnal is for spiritual songs because the primitive Baptists primarily emphasize them, and the red Presbyterian hymnal is for hymns of praise directly to God. That's why we have three songbooks. Because the Bible tells us to sing in psalms, hymns, that's directly to God, and spiritual songs about the Christian life. And so we want to do all three. But the words are so important because the Bible says to sing with the uh, Spirit, but also to sing with the understanding. We should know what we're singing and be thinking about those words. And we are bound up with the Lord in love. He has drawn us with the cords of love, Jeremiah teaches us, and we will not be flung out. We are as safe as he is safe, and he is safe. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time, let's get verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Amen. Paul's charge to Timothy is trait number 22 for higher ground. And that is that this church be steadfast in its doctrine and not change. We cannot change unless God sends us a tsunami of evidence from His Word that tells us to change. We don't care if the whole world changes. And this is the Christian world being described here in these 21 verses, commencing with chapter 3 and verse 1, and running down through that fourth verse of chapter 4, it is one lesson and prophetic warning of a degeneration of churches and Christians into a carnal, compromising, effeminate, worldly brand of Christianity. And it's all around us. They're changing, but we cannot change. It tells us specifically, they will not endure sound doctrine. Doctrine is teaching and instruction. They will not endure careful, didactic, systematic teaching and instruction from the Word of God. They want fables and entertainment instead, and they will turn their ears away from it, and they will heap to themselves teachers that will scratch the lusts of their itching ears. We cannot go with them. And so trait number 22 for the higher ground is a, is a reference to doctrine and it's that we're not going to change until the Lord changes us. He's done it before. He'll do it again in His good time. That's why we pray for it often. Lord, what we don't see, show us. What we see incorrectly, blind us. What we see and we're not doing, convict us. Because we want to be faithful to His Word. 
We want to be faithful in rightly dividing it first, and we want to be faithful in obeying it second. These 21 verses are the most important prophecy in the Bible for us right now. From chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 4, and the fourth verse. 21 verses, a single lesson. Those of us who grew up in Christian homes and memorized Bible verses, you probably memorized one or more verses from these 21, but I want you to appreciate them in the context of this lesson that there would arise a degeneration of Christianity. We cannot be part of it. We must not be part of it. Most churches are changing just as prophesied to match the world. And there's going to be more and more pressure from other churches, from other Christians, and from the world for us to change to be like them. Our position on moral issues will look less and less acceptable, tolerant, right, or political because we're holding to the Bible while the world and most Christians rush away from it. Consider Israel as an example. Foreign nations and their religions continually corrupted Israel. That church came out of Egypt, blessed at Mount Sinai with the written Word of God, a finger in stone, and they turned from it for the idolatry and wickedness of the, the nations and the religions of Canaan. And in the book of Judges and Psalm 78 that summarizes it, the nation of Israel went up and down. They would leave the truth that God had given them, and God would have to judge them. They would cry out in repentance. He'd send a deliverer, one of the judges, that's why it's in the book of Judges, and deliver them. They'd be safe for a few years, and back down they would go. We can't go with them. The higher ground is we don't change unless God changes us. Look at John chapter 8 to see the importance of this trait of the Lord's disciples. Jesus defined a disciple a certain way in John chapter 8. John 8 and verse 31. (coughs) Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed. Because in verse 30 it says, those Jews believed on Him. And so He defines discipleship as continuing. Then He pokes those Jews. He pokes them a little bit over the next 20 verses. And He ends up saying about them when they tried to kill Him, Ye are of your father the devil, in John 8.44. And so there's a rule here for us. And just think, of what could have been, what should have been. What happened to the church of Rome? The church of Rome was in Rome and visited by the Apostle Paul. The first of Paul's epistles were addressed to that church. What if they had held fast? The warning was given very plainly in the last chapter. Romans 16, verse 17, Mark them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. But they didn't. And we don't know how the transition took place between 60 A.D. and maybe 300 A.D. But the true church of Jesus Christ disappeared. And in its place was a monstrosity of the Roman Catholic Church. Contrary to everything written in the Bible. 
contrary to the prophetic warnings about that system of religion. We cannot change. And the change is accelerating around us. And we've got to be thankful that the Lord's chosen us for this time. He did not choose us to face Goliath of the Philistines. He chose us to face tele-evangelists like Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen and see if we would stand fast on God's Word against their social gospel. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 is from one of the preparatory chapters last night that you read in preparing to come into the house of the Lord today. And verse 25 is valuable for us on this point of doctrinal steadfastness. Revelation 2.25 But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. Again, I'll mention to you that the words hold fast. We think of the word fast as moving from point A to B quickly. But when it's hold fast, it means to be fastened in your grip. Hold it fastened and don't let go of it. Buy the truth and sell it not. Solomon preached in the book of Solomon, in the book of Proverbs. But that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. There was a body of truth conveyed by the Lord Jesus Christ to His apostles. From those apostles to men that they saw were chosen by God, that they ordained, and those men chose other men. And this body of truth was conveyed in writing by the apostles and then by men chosen before of God to preach it. As Jim mentioned this morning from Psalm 68 and verse 11, the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of them that published it. Great was the company of the preachers. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, it describes four generations of preachers where Paul told Timothy, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, my public preaching, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There's four generations, Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others also. That body of truth is what is called in Jude 1 and verse 3, earnestly contending for the faith once Delivered to the saints. There are, there isn't new revelation. I don't care if Ron Carpenter of the World Redemption Outreach Center claims to be an apostle. He doesn't have a single qualification of a Bible apostle. And his wife has far less. And they call her an apostoless. There is no revelation. God gave His Word to the apostles, the apostles wrote it down, and the apostles went away. There was no further need for the apostles once we had the apostles write it down in the epistles of the New Testament. But it's been delivered to the saints. Let's hold it fast. God has chosen us for a generation of great change. Let's not let the change take us down. You know, I have shown you historically that in the 19th century, the 1830s, There were enormous religious changes taking place in America preparatory to the Civil War. Huge changes. Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Church of Christ, Finneyism. It just goes on and on in the early part of the 19th century. And many Baptist churches went down during that period of time. Oh no, not here. Let's hold fast to the things that the Lord has shown us. God calls us to continue many times in His Word. You know, we don't want to go back to anything. 
We don't want to move anywhere unless the Lord moves us and directs us. Let's remember the word, young men. The word is that we don't change until the Lord shows us a tsunami of evidence from the word of God that completely replaces the position that we have held before and completely answers any objection that we could raise against it. It's got to thoroughly convince us that we should move. And if every church was faithful like that, we wouldn't have all these isms and denominations and cliques and churches and all kinds just scattered all over the globe believing a a billion different things. If we just held fast until the Lord shows us convincingly and overwhelmingly from Scripture that we should change. We've done it. We'll do it again as soon as He shows us. For those of you that might be wondering, when have we done it? We did it with foot washing. You know, we used to wash feet in this church like Plymouth Brethren do and Mennonites do and some primitive Baptists do and Roman Catholics do. We used to wash feet along with the Lord's Supper. But the Lord showed us powerfully from 1 Timothy chapter 5 that it was not a church ordinance that everyone was to participate in with clean feet. It was a social custom of the day washing dirty feet. And the Lord was very kind to us and, and other things as well. We will continue to ask God to show us changes that we need to make and He can make them plain to us. Look at Job chapter 34 for one of those prayers. Elihu is helping Job how to pray in uh, Job chapter 34. We want to pray like David did in Psalm 19, Lord, cleanse thou me from secret faults. You know, we could easily have a fault that we don't even know we have. Incredibly easy. The body of truth that we hold is entirely subject to God's mercy to show it to us and convict us of it, to embrace it. And what we do not see, if we have a secret fault, Lord, like David, show us and save us from secret faults. And Lord... Open thy word to us that we might behold wondrous things in it. And we will follow those things. Elihu, Job chapter 34, verse 32. He's he's helping Job know how to pray. Let's get verse 31, just for help in moving into verse 32. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement. I will not offend any more. That which I see not, teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. The words I want you to notice here are, That which I see not, teach thou me. Lord, we've prayed it so many times, but we pray it again. We are going to hold fast the things that you have revealed to us from your word. But if there is something that we cannot see because of our blindness, Show it to us, teach us, and we shall change. We promise thee, in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. That was trait number 22, holding fast the doctrine that God's given us. Trait number 23 is expository preaching. Part of what needs to be done out of this pulpit no matter who's in it, no matter when, needs to include expository preaching. 
It doesn't need to be all expository preaching. That's a false burden that are put on some men. But you know, and, and some might be uncomfortable with me naming names, and I hope that you'll get used to it or ask me why. But you know, Joel Osteen has never preached an expository sermon in his life. An expository sermon is taking a section of Scripture and preaching through it word by word. You know, if he did, it would severely limit him because he wouldn't be able to preach that social grinning gospel that he does every every time he gets... Well, he doesn't really use a pulpit, but every time he preaches or speaks, it would constrain him. Expository preaching constrains you down to the Word of God. Right. Instead of his little sappy stories and illustrations and jokes and anecdotes about how God has made every one of you a winner and a champion. And He just wants you to go out and take the world on. Well, the world has supported Joel, so he feels that way when he drives into his garage. But if expository preaching confines you to God's Word, there's two kinds of preaching really, and his isn't preaching, his is storytelling and entertaining. The two kinds of preaching are expository where you take a passage of Scripture and preach through it phrase by phrase. The other kind is topical preaching where you take a subject and then you gather and pull here a little, there a little, as the Bible says in Isaiah 28, from all over the pages of Scripture and compare everything the Bible has to say on that subject. And the the Bible's not written like a handbook so that you can't open the cover and read down through it practical godliness marriage and then turn to that page and have everything that God said about marriage. To preach on marriage, you've got to pull from all over the Bible, both Testaments, to get God's full statement about marriage. That's topical preaching. A pulpit has to have both. The Bible has both. Let's look at expository preaching in the Bible. This is preaching. This chapter should nearly be memorized by anyone going to Bible college or seminary. But it's grossly ignored. Nehemiah chapter 8, the whole chapter is wonderful. There is a wonderful outline on the website about it called the greatest preaching service. But we just want verse 8 because it tells us what expository preaching is. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That is expository preaching. And that is a wonderful little rule that every minister ought to be taught when he's being trained for the ministry to do it God's way. Do you remember we ran into three words over there in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that is a three-word description of a minister's job? Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Preach God's Word. Preach the Bible. How? How am I supposed to do that? So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly. We read God's words distinctly, then give the meaning or sense of those words to the hearers and cause the people to understand the reading. We don't entertain. We're supposed to read the Bible because you don't want to... You don't want to hear from a man. You want to hear from God. God's put His words in writing. We read them distinctly, 
give the sense so that they fit everything else in the Bible and all the internal rules of Bible hermeneutics are kept so that you can understand what God wants you to know. We want to always make sure that there's expository preaching. Do you remember the series on Romans? Do you remember the, the one of my favorite times? It's a long time ago now, but it was preaching through the book of Hebrews, my favorite book of the Bible. Uh, and the wonderful things that the Lord leads us to by just being confined to follow through from the first verse of the first chapter to the last verse of the last chapter and see where the Lord's going to lead us. And it's been a wonderful experience between you and me over many years. Some have created a false requirement that all preaching should be expository. That isn't true. The Apostle Paul, when you go read Hebrews chapter 1, he quotes from seven different places in the Old Testament. That's topical preaching. What is his topic? The preeminence of Jesus Christ. He quotes from seven places. You ever notice those little words in Hebrews 1? And again, comma, and again, comma, and again, comma. What is the and again? He's quoting from a different place. He's quoting from Psalms. He's quoting from Isaiah. He's pulling them all together. That's topical preaching, the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some do not want to be confined by a book, so they only preach topical messages. We want both in our church. We fear Charles Spurgeon and his like that take one text to get started, but really don't preach expositorily or topically. As Brother Newell used to describe it to me, they take one text of the Bible, drive it home in a wall, then hang a frame on it and paint a picture out of one verse. Paul didn't do that. And that, and Nehemiah and Ezra didn't do that. doesn't qualify for either. That's a dangerous habit to get into, but I'm telling you, you can, you can do some wonderful things that way. You know, I could, I could preach to you about the love of God out of 1 Samuel chapter 25 about being bound up in the bundle of life. But I didn't. It was, we were just chasing a little rabbit with that verse. And we got it. This is a warning and instruction for the future of this church. It doesn't matter who's in the pulpit. The clear method was to read distinctly from God's Word and to give the meaning. And such a method of teaching conveys understanding in a reverent and simple way to God's people so that they can, they can follow in their Bibles. You know, the, the Bereans could go home from a service like that and they would have written down some references. They could go find the Scriptures. They didn't have them all at home like we do so conveniently. But they could go search the Scriptures daily to see if those things were so. You know, he made that powerful point from this reference. I want to go see if that's really there. And they went, yes, it's there. Oh, that was powerful. And they proved that what Paul was preaching them was the truth. If this method were followed more often, you know, it would force pastors back to Scripture. There's many topics that, you know, you have to do topically by looking all over the Bible and pulling together all the pieces of what the Bible says because it's not all written in one place. The Bible's not written like a handbook or like a systematic theology. It's written the way God gave it to us. And one of the reasons is he wants to see if his ministers will be faithful in being workmen and really diving into this book and pulling together all the pieces. Otherwise, you end up being ashamed in your doctrine by not getting them all pulled together. And the the shame list just goes on and on and on. There are those that don't believe you should ever take an oath. 
whole denominations. You can never take an oath because they've wandered into Matthew chapter 5 and found the Lord Jesus Christ saying, swear not at all. Let, let your yeas be yea and, and your nays nay and anything more than this is sin. That's all they read. So they make a rule for their denomination that you can't ever take an oath. You can't go into court, put your left hand in a Bible and say, so help me God. Can't do it because they haven't read the rest of the Bible that says that putting your hand in the Bible and raising your hand to heaven and saying, as the Lord liveth, or so help me God, is an act of worship. Right. There's other benefits of expository preaching. They're good to remember. The development of connections is more the mind of God than the mind of man because he's showing you his connections. And the Bible does say to compare spiritual things with spiritual. It helps those who read the Bible but are not adept at analyzing a text for its sense because you lead them through a passage that hopefully in the future when they read that chapter or they read that book of the Bible, they know what it's talking about. So they're blessed in future readings of Scripture. It leaves a body of teaching that can be accessed for explaining a text instead of just a topic. Because some, sometimes you want to know, what does God say about this subject? At other times you want to know, what does God say and mean by this passage? And by preaching both, you're benefiting the church the most. Trait number 24, very briefly. You know why 24 is very brief? Because this church has been outstanding in its care of its pastor from the very beginning. And trait number 24 is to provide for your pastor. This church has been outstanding. There's not a church in the world. I don't know of one. Maybe there is. How many churches have there been where the pastor has demanded that their church give them a 25% pay cut? Four times. You're crazy. It's a crazy church, and I'm very thankful to be a member of it. I don't know why I'm its pastor. Very briefly, provide for your pastor. The spiritual health of a church partly depends on the pastor and his role as shepherd. You know... Let's go over here to Proverbs chapter 14 and remind ourselves of that simple little verse that gives us a principle that Paul said we should apply to ministers. We don't take an offering in this church because we can't see it described in the Bible. There's boxes up here on the table. One's called the ox box. Why in the world do we call it the ox box? Because Paul said that Moses rules for taking care of oxen should be applied to pastors in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, so it's called the ox box. The other box is every other expense of the church, the general fund. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4, where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. Financial and business success depends on you leveraging your ability by getting income-producing assets is what that verse is teaching. Where no oxen are. If a man, before tractors, of course, if a man were to limit himself to what he and his family can do with a hoe and a shovel, they would only be able to exist at a subsistence level. They, they would barely have enough to eat themselves. But if they were to save money and by God's blessing get themselves an ox, Now, when they bring that ox home from market and they have coughed up all of their savings and they are reduced to nothing 
And the family knows how they have rationed out everything that they've grown to this point. And they let that ox loose near some food. That ox eats so much that it would, it would scream, this is a stupid decision. He's eating all our food. But God invented the ox. And the ox, yes. God invented the ox. And that ox is going to be able to plow acres of food to feed him, to feed the family, to put in savings to buy the next ox. Just a wonderful lesson. Mm -hmm. A church needs to have an unfettered, encouraged, supported, prayed for pastor in order to fill the corn crib of God's church. The happier a pastor pastor spiritually, the greater the church profits, the greater you profit. Let me just run over a list. Financial support is to encourage a pastor. It says it in both testaments. Hezekiah went through Israel and said, make sure that you're giving the Levites and the priests their portion, that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. When a minister does not have to worry about where, how his family is going to be supported, and he can just study full-time as many hours as God will give him energy, who benefits? The church benefits. And so it's a wonderful relationship. Paul said, you labor, and and I help you by teaching and praying for you in your labors to share natural things, and I try to work hard on my end to share spiritual things, and it's the way the Lord intended it to work. And it it can and should work wonderfully. But I've already said that you people have been outstanding from the very beginning when I moved here in 1984. Financial support. But there's a whole lot more in the Bible. Protecting his time. There's three things a minister is supposed to give himself to. Reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Give yourself wholly to them. So you protect his time. He doesn't have time for the friendships that would ordinarily occur between men where there's a lot of time wasted superficially or doing things that are more like a hobby or just excursions. Pray for him. Paul sought prayer for himself. How much more do ordinary men need prayer? These are 12 things that you can do to provide for your pastor in the future. And I'm talking about any other man that is ever in this pulpit as your pastor because you've done these things for me. Be at peace among yourselves. Do you remember how 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 tacked on that sentence, be at peace among yourselves, because when there's differences and fighting and contentions and situations to deal with in a church, it occupies the mind, it occupies the stomach, it churns the liver and takes up precious time that could be spent on advancing, not going back and helping children get along with each other. And that's why as a church, these things about peace and unity, forgiveness and mercy, they're preached often because we want to advance. And the Lord has shown us plenty, but He can show us more. No matter who your pastor is, member duties relieve Him of doing what you should do. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which I read earlier this morning, it said this, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, this is not a ministerial duty, this is a church member duty. We exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. If all church members did that, it frees up a pastor 
to put focus into the Word of God. Do you know when you've had to study something that was complicated, complex, difficult, and there was a lot writing on it, how much you needed to focus and, and little distractions would... Mm. Do you know what I'm ta- talking about? When a church does its duty, there's less of that in the pastor's life. And more for him to focus on God's Word. Defend Him from those not truly capable of understanding His office. Paul said, it's a very little thing if I be judged of you. I have another judge. The Lord's going to judge me. Defend whoever is in this pulpit. Magnify His office like Paul did in Romans chapter 11 and verse 13, reminding people of how important the office of a minister is. Know your pastor in appreciating his personal difficulties and goals. These are all taught in the Bible. There are verses for each one of them. It's part of a church advancing in the future. Esteem your pastor for his work's sake, which is 1 Thessalonians 5. Obey your pastor in his role, just as you would other rulers in their role. His role is limited, but in that limited role, obey him in those areas where you should follow him. Follow your pastor cheerfully and willingly as you would expect others to do because Hebrews 13 says, tells you to do so. Remember them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God whose faith follow. Remembering the end of their conversation that they're going to be held accountable to God for how they live and lead. Keep your pastor. Obedience will keep him around. There were warnings in the Old Testament that if Israel did not obey the word that God had sent to them, They would lose their ministry and there would be a famine for the Word of God. You people are wonderful. And I hope that any pastor in the future is taken care of like you've taken care of me. And I've tried to take care of you and may God bless us in the future to take care of each other and whoever else might ever be in this pulpit that we would have the benefit of him being unfettered and freed up, supported, encouraged, and propel to do his job. I mean, how exciting was it for Israel to gather together? In Nehemiah chapter 8, it says they came as one man. They came as one man, and they all stood there in the gate before the water gate, all the congregation, right down to children that could understand. They all stood there, and a man crawled up on the pulpit. A pulpit is not a place to hold a Bible. A pulpit is a, a, pulpit is a platform. Ezra walked up on that pulpit and opened the Word of God in the sight of the whole congregation. And they bowed their heads and Ezra blessed the Most High God. And they were all there like birds in a nest with their mouths wide open. Feed us the Word of God. It was a, Nehemiah 8 is wonderful. But I want to, I'm building up to something. Ezra stands on that pulpit and he opens the Word of God and the people shout, Amen! Amen! It's a great preaching service! But you know what it says about Ezra? He was a ready scribe in the law of God. Do you know what he did from 8 to 5? Or from 6 to 6? Or from 5 to 7? Every day? He was a ready scribe in the law of God. Nobody else could have done what Ezra did on that pulpit like Ezra did it because Israel had supported him when they came back from the Babylonian captivity 
And when he was captive, he had been supported enough that he was a ready scribe. Enough. Okay, I get to a favorite one. When we close with this one. This is huge. We could preach for sermons on this one. What in the world's left, Pastor? Well, I have a whole list that I'm not going to preach to you. It'll be in the outline. I have a whole other list of things that are higher ground, and we'll deal with them sometime in the future. It's time to end this series with this year. So there's only one trait left. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's not the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I am sorry that our beginnings as a church emphasized doctrine and strictness over this trait. I didn't know better. The Bible corrected me. And I have promised to you for decades now that you're going to hear on this subject at least once a quarter because it's the greatest. And I am sorry that most of you weren't even here back then to know how much this was like a seminary class and there was no body life. The Lord's changed us. Verse 28. The gifts of the New Testament church in apostolic days. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles. I love it when the Lord ranks things for us. Secondarily, prophets. Thirdly, teachers. After that, miracles. May I stop right now? That's... We don't really appreciate teaching like we should because we think of miracles. I mean, if you were to ask me if I didn't know this verse through my childhood for sure, what would you rather have, a sermon or a miracle show outside? (laughs) Oh, yes. Bring the miracles on. I'd like fire to fall from heaven. I'd like an axe head to swim in a river. I'd like the things that Elisha and Elijah did. Miracles. Notice how God ranks them. Miracles come later. They're after teaching. And this teaching is ordinary teaching. The apostles did not practice ordinary teaching. They taught by inspiration. The prophets taught by inspiration. This third job is what is left in the church. It's pastors and teachers that have to study the Word of God, like Paul told Timothy, because he was a second-generation teacher. He couldn't rely on God's inspiration like Paul did. But thirdly was teachers, after that miracles, that means they're fourth in this list, then, notice the ranks continue, gifts of healings. What should Benny do rather than pretend to heal somebody? He should teach the Word of God. Then helps. Those are like deacons, governments, diversities of tongues. The least and last gift ever given to the New Testament church was the gift of tongues, but they make it the most important thing. But this is the Word of God. We want to go on because this is not my point. Are all apostles? No, there's only a few. Are all prophets? No, there were only a few. 
Are all teachers? No, there's only some. Because in Ephesians 4, he says he gave some. Pastors and teachers are all workers of miracles. No, they weren't. Have all the gifts of healing? No, they didn't. Do all speak with tongues? No, they didn't. Do all interpret tongues? No, they did not. And so, as Paul starts in with 1 Corinthians 12 to handle the problems that were at Corinth because of their spiritual gifts, he is going to make a profound statement. He has just listed from top to bottom the gifts of the New Testament church. Then he says, covet earnestly the best gifts. If you're going to desire an office, if you're going to desire a gift, don't desire the bottom one of speaking in tongues. Desire something like teaching. And yet, show I unto you a more excellent way. There is a more excellent way of serving Jesus Christ than worrying about where you come on the pecking order of those gifts descending from apostle down to speaking in tongues. There's a more excellent way of serving God than being an apostle. This is profound. Yet show I unto you a more excellent way. What is the more excellent way than being an apostle? What's the more excellent way than being a pastor? Chapter 13 is the more excellent way. It's charity. It's love. It's brotherly love. It's how we love each other and forgive each other and desire the best for each other and seek the best of each other. This is the greatest. This is the greatest trait in certain practical ways. You know, we started by being Christ-centered. We want a Christ-centered church with more emphasis on the Holy Ghost and more praying because those are spiritual priorities of the highest order. But in relating to each other, love is the greatest. The grace that we want to bring out of our lives Not what we're taking in by Christ-centeredness and and centering our affection on Him, but in how we change our daily conduct with one another is brotherly love. So that the apostle would go on to say, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I've got the greatest gift of tongues ever. He's, He's describing a hypothetical case here of having the tongues of angels. And I don't have charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. If I start at the bottom of the list, and I have the greatest gift of tongues ever, I'm speaking the language of angels. I'm not speaking Greek, Hebrew, or Russian. I'm speaking the language of angels, and I don't have charity. I sound like a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, now that's the second gift of a prophet, and understand all mysteries, not some mysteries, not a few, and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, and have not charity, I'm nothing. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I'm a martyr. And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. There is something that in the sight of God is greater than all those things. And those three things is a pretty lofty list of a spiritual giant. He dies a martyr's death. He understands all mysteries and all knowledge. And he speaks in the language of angels. But he's worthless. Because he doesn't know how to love other people. Wow! 
Look at verse 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. You know, the decisional salvation school has emphasized believing on Jesus and exercising faith so much, they put faith way up here. And they don't preach on love like it ought to be preached on. Charity is greater than faith. The devils believe and tremble about more truth than you do. But they don't love. We can love. And all those gifts went away. Verses 8 through verses 8 through 12 teach that all those gifts listed in chapter 12 and assumed in verses 1 through 3, they went away except for the ordinary gifts. Those supernatural apostolic gifts went away, but charity never goes away. But let's come, there's one sentence here that's important. It's one, of the, it's one of the chief sentences that ought to be memorized by our children. It's verses 4 through 7. It is one sentence. It has 15 phrases about the definition of love. It defines love at a level that is unbelievable. It's so beautiful. Only God could write the Bible and write a verse like this. A sentence like this. This is one sentence 15 descriptive phrases of what love is. Verse 4, charity or love. Charity suffereth long. It puts up with being hurt. And is kind. It does positive, nice, profitable things for others. Charity envieth not. It never resents the advantages of another. Charity vaunteth not itself. It does not put itself forward or up, is not puffed up. Charity doesn't think highly of itself inside, and it doesn't vaunt itself outside. We've had, we've had five phrases. It's absolutely beautiful. Verse 5, charity doth not behave itself unseemly. It is always courteous and follows social decorum in relating to other people. Seeketh not her own. It is not selfish. It's always looking out for other people. Is not easily provoked. Though you offend them, they don't get angry. Charity thinketh no evil. When it sees you doing something that is questionable, it puts the best constructions on what you're doing. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity. It never gets excited and glad when you sin. But it gets excited and glad in the truth. Charity beareth all things. It puts up with you offending it or hurting it or neglecting this person. Charity believeth all things. And when you can't believe all things about a person, charity hopes all things anyway. Charity endureth all things. This is just a, this sentence is incredible. If a marriage were to take one sentence, this is the sentence. If a husband and a wife were to treat each other this way, they got it made in the shade. It won't be that cool marriage I was talking about earlier. It'll be a hot one. If a church were to put this into practice, of all the members toward one another thinking this way about each other, it would be one fantastic church. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by the love ye have one to another. The higher ground includes love. Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you. Yet, it's an old commandment you've heard from the beginning. How can he say it both ways? Because love was taught in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 16, 17, 18. And, but Jesus put a greater emphasis on it in the New Testament and explained it and illustrated it in a new way than ever seen before. 
when Jesus laid down his life for us. Our religion is two commandments. You know, David sought the good of Jerusalem, the, the good of the church, for the benefit of his companions. You want to seek the good of this church for the benefit of everyone here. How are we going to define love? I've tried to define it this way to you. Love is the sacrificial desire and service to please and profit others for Jesus Christ. Love is the sacrificial desire and service to please and profit others for Jesus Christ. The highest definition of love, the highest standard of love, is that I would care for you enough to do anything and everything that I can to help you be ready to stand before Jesus Christ in the day of judgment. On the way to that goal, I am going to be providing every bit of encouragement, kind and gentle warnings, instruction, affection, kindness, putting up with you, rejecting me, and making it difficult for me. Let's pretend it's the Apostle Paul speaking, because the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Because love is sacrificial. It doesn't care if love's coming back. It just wants to give love. It does not care if love's coming this direction. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. But on the way up there, you are helping a person max life to the fullest. Because the things that you would help a person do to stand before Jesus Christ without fault and to stand there confidently are the things that make a perfect life. Because you're going to help them with their marriage. You're going to encourage them in the Lord. When they're cast down, you're going to lift them up. It just goes on and on. I've preached hours and hours on this subject to you over decades. But when we think about what is the higher ground for our church, everything has got to be permeated with love. Love. That kind of love right there in 1 Corinthians 13. It suffers long. You will put up and be hurt and shut up. You won't let it bother you. You'll flush it. Because charity suffereth long, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, seeketh not her own. It's selfless. And if a group of people that have been, that have been shown and have felt and known God's love for them were to in turn show that love toward others, what a church it can be. Throughout the pages of the New Testament is love, love, love. Love is the greatest grace. Love is the greatest duty. Love is the greatest evidence. Love is the greatest in the New Testament. It's far greater than faith. It's easy to say, yeah, I believe that. Try to go help somebody that you don't like. Take them out to a meal. Throw attention on them. Throw time on them. Interrupt your schedule for them. That's a whole different level of giving. And yet the Lord's done it all for us, so it should be easy for us to do it to others. Building up to that ultimate goal 
is both negative and positive aspects of affection. Did you notice in this one sentence definition of love that more than half of the 15 phrases are negative in nature because we're all sinners. And to love another sinner means you have to put up with them hurting you. And that is such a big part of love. Them disappointing you. Them not following through on their word. You forgive them. You suffer long. That's long suffering. That's enduring some pain for a while. But it's love. It's real love. I'll always be there. Paul would always be there for the Corinthians. God is always there for us. Jesus Christ is always there for us. The Bible says we can cover a multitude of sins this way. And the sins that we cover are those sins back and forth among ourselves because fervent charity covers them. Who cares? Because there's going to be lots to cover by the nature of a church. This is the body life of a church. These are the things that going into the future we want to remember and do in this church. When you came here on June 7th, I laid before you in slides and tables. I listed all the doctrinal points and practical points that God has saved us from over 35 years of time. We can't be content with where the Lord's brought us. We want to press on. And throughout the pages of Scripture, you know, all the traits that I've given you, but now this one at the end, this is the crowning jewel in a Christian's life is brotherly love. And may we show it toward one another in abundance. May it permeate everything we do. May it always be there. May our children know that there is more love and warmth and forgiveness and support and help and encouragement and kindness in this assembly than anywhere else on earth. Because the Lord has loved us first. We love Him back. And we love one another. And our religion in its simplicity is fulfilled in our lives to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor, especially our brethren, as our own souls. The Bible says, as you have opportunity, do good to all men. But especially them that are of the household of faith, the family of God that he's put together in this place. The value of this sermon series is not the preaching of it, the hearing of it, or the outline of it that will be on the website, but rather our application together, pastor and people, of the traits. We don't want to give Jesus Christ an average church. We want to give him the best that we can. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. Amen. Amen.